Today's scripture is from uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter uh, 14, in verses 22 and 23. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there, alone. But the boat by this time was a long way away from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, Is it a ghost? And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Um, I do want to talk about Christ and chaos today. I am excited to get back into Matthew. Um, I guess this is our official restart of Matthew, now the second half, and we're going to go faithfully, um, you know, just passage by passage to, uh, it should take us to the end of the summer, so I hope you're excited to get back into Matthew's gospel as well. So, let's begin with chaos, chaos. Uh, these are what you see on the screen, just snippets, just literal from the front page of news websites, uh, Canadian websites, and uh, these are the headlines that were on uh, just this past week. Uh, Canada's already slowing recovery faces a second wave roadblock. And it was an article of how small and medium businesses are up for another challenge. A Toronto woman charged in death of two-year-old uh, who fell from 14th floor apartment window. Just the headline alone, so gruesome. O'Toole, the new PC leader, PC uh, federal party leader, accuses liberals of deliberately introducing divisive anti-conversion bill at start of his leadership. 
that's a whole can of worms right there. Uh, news from the States, overpowering Canadian news as well. Seagram heiress Claire Bronfman gets 81 months in jail, 6.5 million fine for a Nexium sex cult role. Uh, back to Toronto, thousands of Toronto students switch to virtual school as COVID-19 case count rises. And I can attest to this, my wife is a TDSB teacher and her class keeps shrinking. Uh, the first presidential debate this past week was out of control. Here's why making the next one better will be difficult. And of course, there's even more recent news from down south. The president himself and his staff uh, catching the virus. Now, these are just national, federal, global headlines, and it's very chaotic. What if your personal life was turned into headlines? How many of the headlines from your life would be chaotic in nature? How many would be peaceful? Uh, headlines about your vocation. Headlines about whether you're married or single, just your, your romantic life. Headlines about certain secrecies in, in your life. Maybe headlines about difficult relationships and someone that is implacable in your life. Or headlines about how you're dealing with the success in your life. So how do you deal with the chaos in your life, personally, but also as you look out on the world? Uh, myself, in my own journey, and my own uh, following of Christ, it's a constant trying to make sense of what I see going on in the world with with the reality of Christ's kingdom here, but not yet. Now, today then, as we work through today's passage, I hope, my, my hope for you as pastor, is that the rubber of faith would meet the road of life, and I think where it begins is from your heart, you cry out by faith to God in prayer. That's the beginning point. And so I hope there's something that is stirred in your heart by God's Spirit that you would want to continually cry out in your life, Lord, Save me. Lord, save me. I think this is the conclusion of today's passage and where we want to, just the direction we want to be thinking and, and feeling and, and just reflecting as we think of Christ in chaos. So let's go back to the very beginning. And as Russ was mentioning in his lead up to the sermon, uh, stories. History is a story. God is unfolding his redemptive story. And so we need to go back to the story, according to God, to creation. And we want to ask, did God intend life to be chaotic? And the short answer, beautiful answer, hopeful answer is no. Going right to the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What I want you to observe and understand is that those words in red are all synonyms, and in English, we could summarize all those words as chaos. There was actually a chaos that was going on before creation, and I want you to observe that the Spirit of God was hovering. That's going to be important to remember to understand why Christ walks on water. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the chaos. We could say that uh, in different words. Now, we need to understand as then through history, uh, God's people Israel, the Jewish culture, and even in the New Testament, 
water, large bodies of water, and especially when the winds and waves would take over and create very uh, just torrential squalls, dangerous squalls, it represented for them in their hearts and their understanding, their worldview, large bodies of water represented chaos, even hell, the abyss of hell. And I want you to see if we could come up with an opposite of what chaos is. What is the opposite of chaos? The opposite of chaos for God in his eyes and for the Christ follower is creation. Because from the chaos, God brings order, beauty, goodness, what we see as the universe and this planet Earth, this beautiful planet Earth, the, the sun that rotates in rhythm and calls us to wake up in each and every day as was shared uh, at the beginning of the service. This is what God intended for us. Goodness, calm, order, harmony, beauty, not chaos. God did not intend chaos for us. In fact, he so not intended chaos for us that he brought beautiful creation out of it. And that was the world that we were meant to live in where our relationship with God, for starters, was in harmony. And from there, our relationship with one another, man to man, man versus nature, was all in beautiful harmony. So creation, as God intended it to be. But what happened at the fall? This is the, the major next chapter of God unfolding his story in history. And you need to understand this if you want to understand what it means to Place your faith in God and to follow Jesus. There was a fall, and by fall we mean a moral fall, a disobedience and rebellion by Adam and Eve. And when they disobeyed, when they broke the commandments that God had given them, chaos re-entered creation through their disobedience. And so really, when you look out on the headlines, when I show you the headlines earlier, when I showed you those headlines, and you think of even the chaos of your own personal life, a synonym for chaos is sin. There's chaos in this life because of sin. And what we need to understand, the idea that I want you to get is that chaos re-entered creation through Adam and Eve's disobedience. But the more important notion and idea, the truth to hold on to is that God in His sovereignty in his wisdom, his power over chaos, he uses chaos through history and even the chaos of our lives for his purposes. That is who our God is. And even in the fall, we begin to see that. So much so that the psalmist in 107, Psalm 107, he'll reflect in this way. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. So meaning they're trying to just go about life uh, earn a living, but on the great waters where there's still chaos, they saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works. Notice, the psalmist here is calling the chaos of the great waters God's wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind. God is sovereign over the chaos, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And we see this in today's passage as well. Now, Getting to today's passage, Matthew 14, picking up at 22, immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, if you weren't, didn't hear the message on that, I encourage you to go to our website, 
Uh, Colin, one of our elders, did a wonderful uh, sermon on that. But immediately after that feeding of the 5,000, notice Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Matthew chooses this wording intentionally because he wants us to know that Jesus, by design, is now about to teach his disciples another lesson. This is Jesus' sovereignty. This is Jesus' orchestration. He is sending the disciples ahead of him in a boat to go to the other side, and Jesus would meet him there, meet them there. And notice, by design, when evening came, as we continue to read, he was there alone, Jesus, after having dismissed the crowds, and now describing the disciples, their predicament. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land and again beaten by the waves. I say again because back in chapter 8 of Matthew, the disciples experienced the same thing in the way Matthew describes at least four of them were professional seamen. And even they, being professional boatsmen, they were fearing for their lives. And this is a similar picture going on, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And so in the fall, we see chaos enter creation, but God, he has a purpose for it. And even in your own life, I want to pause here and and encourage you personally, if there's any chaos going on in your life, anything that you would put in the category of chaotic, Trust, trust that God has a purpose to grow you through it, to deepen your faith, that there is a goodness to it, that God is sovereign over it, that he's allowing it by design because he intends to make you more and more Christ-like through it. So what we need to ask then is, what is Jesus Christ declaring by walking on water? I mean, it seems like a random Feet, a random thing that Jesus would do. Feeding the 5,000, there's more of a natural need there. People were hungry. Jesus had compassion on them. But to walk on water, if you just, without ever having heard the story, if you ask God or Jesus Christ to prove his divinity, I don't know how many of us would naturally put this on, say, the top three things we would ask Jesus to do. But Jesus, in his ministry, his life, he sets up this moment and he intentionally wants to demonstrate that he can walk on water to his disciples. Why? What is Jesus declaring? So I want you to observe with me, picking up in verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now this is where to read the Bible, we do need to to have the discipline to put ourselves into their shoes. And in their minds, seeing this ghost hovering over the water and coming towards them would be akin to you and me seeing the grim reaper. Remember, especially with the waters being turbulent and, and their lives at stake, they're very much physically in what metaphorically for them represented the abyss of hell, the abyss of death. And from the abyss and bowels of hell is coming this 
this phantom, this figure, and to you and me, it would be akin to the grim reaper. And so, as grown men, they cry out in fear. I think it's just reflecting on my own life and the one time that, or the, the first memory that came where I actually cried out as a grown man was when I got into a bike accident and I got hit by a car making a left turn that didn't see me. And I saw what was going to happen. And in that moment, I just screamed as loud as I could, just, ah! I screamed in fear as a grown man. And this is what's going on here. They, 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 this, this, this is what you have to understand. That that's sort of the psyche, the, how they are experiencing the situation. And they thought they would die. Now, here's what we need to, I think, glean from this picture then. See, Jesus himself, in, in walking on water then and appearing as the grim reaper, so to speak, he's a purpose for this. He is foreshadowing even his very own coming out of the chaotic abyss of hell to save us. That's the extent that Jesus would go to to demonstrate God's love for his people, the church. To be willing to go to the very depths and chaotic depths of our lives, of human condition and history. That's why Jesus came to this earth. That's what it means for him to have come to this earth and to die on the cross in our stead. And we believe that he went to the very depths of hell that his taking on our punishment, it went to that place of experiencing the very wrath of God. We know that Jesus, even for himself, the water here, it represented that, that judgment. Later in Matthew 18, we'll get there eventually, but just to give you a little preview, just reading, picking up Matthew 18, verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. See, Jesus here as well, the water deliberately represented the chaotic abyss of judgment, of hell. Here's this picture that Jesus is painting of of a, of a crime before God that is damnable to eternal punishment. Now, I want you to observe with me then, though. It doesn't stay all dark and grim. Picking up at verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, that's around between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's how difficult it was for these sailors, these at least four fishermen there, to get across the Sea of Galilee. And around the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them, again, walking on the sea. We're asking, why does Jesus, what is Jesus declaring by him walking on the sea? Why does he deliberately choose this very unique uh, supernatural act? Jumping to verse 27, as they are fearing for their lives, that's what verse 26 says, but immediately Jesus spoke. He sees their fear. He, they believe that Death is upon them. But they're about to sink into the chaotic abyss of what represents for them hell. And his words to them, so simple, but with eternal, eternally powerful 
of consequence and, and, and ramification, he says, take heart. I imagine just in the, the noise of the storm, Jesus bellowed this with a confident voice. Simple, confident, strong, clear, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. But this English translation here, I, I really believe that Matthew was trying to get at something else. It just literally translates, I am. Just as Jesus, I believe in the Gospel of John, he says, before Abraham, I am. It's the same language in the Greek, ego, me. Jesus is saying, take heart, I am. And, and for these disciples, that would immediately trigger, having grown up with the scriptures, thinking of Exodus, where God describes to Moses, I am who I am. Meaning, I am God from eternity past to eternity future. And the disciples would also have in their, just the culture that they were brought up in, and in their, their thinking, their worldview, this Jesus who is hovering over the chaos of the waters, it would make them think of the spirit that was hovering over the chaos before creation. And Jesus is saying, Jesus is declaring that he is one with the spirit that hovered over the chaotic waters before creation. When you and I think of the chaos of this world, when you and I think of the chaos of our lives, who to go to then, the very one who can conquer all the chaos, who, who brought beautiful creation out of chaos, that is the one that we should go to, that we should want to go to. And Jesus is saying here, do not fear, take heart. I'm the one that brought goodness and order and harmony to this world in the first place. And I can be the one to restore it. So let's ask now, how are you and I like Peter? How does Jesus walking on water play out in our lives today? And on one hand, this is one giant object lesson that Jesus is trying to uh, pass on. But it's not just an object lesson. There are real truths here. They were being truly saved physically in that moment by Christ, but with so many more eternal truths and ramifications. Now, I want to say straight off the bat, the point here, the very easy sort of superficial way to take this passage and make it very sweet like candy, to turn it into just a, a sort of a tasty, uh, you know, low spiritual calorie, uh, just, you know, lesson here is, is just to moralize this and to see this as a wonderful Christian self-help idea that if you want to live out your dreams and then you have to risk and, and get out of the boat. If you want to walk on water and experience supernatural things, your dreams fulfilled, you got to get out of the boat. I don't think that's what Jesus wants us to take away from this. This is not that we gain some, as well, some sensational Christian superpower, right? How many more times does Peter walk on water? At least what's recorded is none. The point isn't that 
he was powering up like in some video game to all of a sudden have these superpowers that he can he become some kind of Christian superhero. The point is not that we glean some self-help and positive thinking principles to tap into some secret level of Christian faith feng shui, so to speak, to serve uh, you know, our self-fulfilling uh, dreams. And, and remember, the more I understand it, I get it, self-help and, and positive thinking is just another subtle way that we try to climb back up to God on that staircase of life. But it's, it's our work, our attempt, our striving. So I want you to observe, to see ourselves properly, and to learn from Peter, and to see ourselves properly in this passage. Let's observe first. And Peter, picking up verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, and all the commentators agree that, that it's, it's not so much a conditional. That was Peter's way. The language is saying, Jesus, Peter is declaring, it is you. I see that it is you. And Peter, for whatever reason in his heart, what comes out is command me to come to you on the water. Now, I want you to notice and observe with me that Matthew, he doesn't describe Peter's motives. He doesn't describe why Peter would want to walk on water here. If I think of, you know, just try to use my imagination, maybe Peter was trying to one-up his fellow disciples with a daring faith act, more audacious and bold than any other disciple could think of. Maybe Peter, more positively, was longing to be with Christ. He does see that it's not a phantom. It's not a ghost. It's actually the very diametric opposite. It is the greatest holiness. It is Christ himself. And he wants to be with his Lord. And maybe he wants to be like his Lord. That's what a disciple is. Someone who longs to be like his teacher. And so if Jesus is walking on water, then maybe very simply, Peter just thought, then I want to be with my Lord and want to walk on water like my Lord. Maybe Peter just wanted to experience something. Just another thrill. Kind of like maybe just easily could have gone bungee jumping. (laughs) Or maybe Peter was moving on to the, the next lesson. As I said earlier, they were already in a similar situation in Matthew 8. And they had learned Jesus was sleeping in the boat then. And the fearful disciples stirred him awake. And he calms the storm. And so... Maybe he already had cemented in his heart the lesson. You know what? I know. I already believe. I know that Jesus can calm this with a whisper. So maybe there's a, a, what's the next lesson here? We don't know. We don't know what his motive was. But I think it's kind of the point. Because when we look to the end of what happened, he sinks. He, he doesn't, he isn't fully successful in whatever this is, whatever reason why he wanted to uh, walk on water. But I want to apply that. I don't know if this was actually Matthew's intent, but I think there's something that we can take away from this. And I want to apply it to your life and my life and one way to live this out. And, And let's question our motives in doing good. Let's make sure that even the way we pray, the way we 
live out our Christianity, that we're not subtly and secretly thinking that God is going to bless me more or that he owes me or that I'm just using my Christianity to try to hit another level in life. Maybe, I don't know again if these were Peter's motives, but certainly wanting to be with Christ is a good motive. Whatever our Christian journey is and whatever lessons that we think that we are learning now or that God is trying to teach us, that the ultimate goal would be wanting to be with Christ. Now, just a natural progression from that is look to Christ to ultimately overcome the chaos of your life. That much we see in Peter. He saw Jesus walking over the water, walking over the chaos, and when he was certain that this is his Jesus, certainly there was a confidence that Jesus is overcoming this chaos. And so in moving toward Jesus, Peter hovered over the chaos as well. And I think there's a principle there for you and me. Even in my own life, I've experienced over and over again where the circumstances of life, whatever happens that day, all of a sudden starts to beat away at my peace and I feel anxious, I feel nervous, I feel angry, I feel impatient. But the times I actually, in my inner person, pause to pray or perhaps to read the Psalms, to to recite a Psalm and look to Christ and think of Him and His name and, and ask the Spirit to fill me, there does come, I've experienced, this is my testimony, there has come a supernatural peace over and over again. And so we are to look to Christ to ultimately overcome the chaos in our lives. Now I want you to observe as well in verse 30, but when he saw the wind, this is Peter, when Peter saw the wind, and here obviously it means the effects of the wind, the wind continuing to create squalls and waves, then he became afraid. And so he was doing well. There was something, or at least to be fair, Peter was overcoming the chaos of the waters as he was walking towards Christ. And in between the lines here, I think it's safe to conclude what Matthew is assuming, that Peter did have his eyes on Christ until he took his eyes off and saw the wind around. I think that's a fair assumption here. And when he took his eyes off Christ, the chaos, what did it do? It had the effect of drawing out what was in his heart. He was afraid. You see, while we're on this earth, after you place your faith in Christ, you are in between until Christ returns or calls you home and then perfects you into glory. We're all mixed bags. There's one nature in us that is the spirit and is regenerating us and we are full of faith and we're able to overflow God's grace and Christ's character. But we're mixed bags. There's also our sinful nature that is still there that is being just filtered out, refined out. But the chaos, often what it does, it has the effect of bringing to the surface what's there. And we see that happen with Peter. And so I think a practical, wise takeaway 
to live this out in our lives, reflect on chaos and death now. When there is chaos in your life, when you see the headlines, pay attention honestly to see what is revealed in your heart. That's one of Jesus' purpose here, I think. What has really taken place is that Peter's focus, as it shifted from the Savior to the storm, this mixed bag of emotions and whatnot, it's revealed. But again, going back to that earlier truth, God is sovereign. And He uses that, even what is revealed, not to condemn us, but because He longs to continue to grow us and mature us towards ever-increasing Christ-likeness. Because we've been saved to be formed, conformed into the image of His Son. Now, I want you to observe with me finally. I think this is the, the peak of the passage. Verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. This is powerful. And, and this, in Peter's emotions, I am thinking that he's like, I am going to die. And, and even symbolically, I am beginning to sink into the abyss of chaotic hell. This is my judgment. And beginning to sink, he cried out. And this is where you and I need to be most like Peter. I hope in your heart, as you face the chaos of your life and the chaos of this world and history, that what would be instinctive is to cry out, Lord, save me. What Peter felt physically and situationally, he also felt, and we must also feel spiritually in regards to this life. And so let the foundation of your life be to call on the name of the Lord. And this is a theme we see throughout Scripture, going back to Psalm 69. Save me, O God! The psalmist is calling on the name of the Lord, for the waters have come up to my neck. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, that the Apostle Paul quotes in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I, so I, I, I hope that even more um, subconscious, even more just uh, natural and automatic nervous system than breathing for you would be in the background of your heart, in your mind, there would just be this constant calling on the name of the Lord. Just a quick, you know, shout out to parents. Just yesterday, I was rollerblading with my daughter uh, at dusk. And so we put uh, helmet lights on, on our helmets. And mine was exceptionally bright. And I was beside her going at her pace and, and putting my head down to light up the path for her <laughs> so that she could see every crack and so that she wouldn't fall. And it just came to my mind, you know, your word is a lamp unto my feet. I said, hey, Emma, that's my daughter's name. Uh, you know, the Bible compares... Uh, God's word to like a light. Like, isn't this light helping you right now? And, and she got it. But what I'm trying to give that as an example of is, is just the foundation. That, that, that's just an, a manifestation of trying to demonstrate what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Every situation, trying to make it a moment, how, how can I see Christ in this moment? And I hope that cements in her heart. 
Now Jesus, his assessment, his diagnosis, observe with me in verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand. So he said, Lord, save me. And here's the most beautiful moment of this passage. It's not Peter walking on the water. I think some of us want that to be because we, we want that sensational Christian experience or whatnot. But the most beautiful moment here is Peter calls out on the name of the Lord to be saved. Jesus reaches out and takes hold of him. And there is the definition of Christian faith. Union with Christ. Truly a picture of Jesus, the vine, and Peter being the branch. Jesus being the lifeline, and Peter being attached to that lifeline. And here, when Jesus assesses, he says often to his disciples, if you read it one way, it's very disheartening. And you feel guilty and shameful because you kind of see yourself in receiving these words. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But the commentators say it's not a guilty condemnation. But it's more like a loving parent seeing how their child is trying, but they still have more to grow. They have more to, they'll get there eventually, but they're just in a place where they're just not capable because of just where they're at. And so this is actually a tender assessment. And all the more Jesus, what he's saying is, Peter, I get it. To a certain extent, by whatever was going on here, by Spirit helping, you were able to overcome the chaos. And that's what we want to hear. That's what most people, even Christians at times, we want to hear more of, how do I make my life better? How do we solve the problems of society and humanity? We want to do that, and, and we get to a certain place, but we need to admit. We need to come to a place and admit our utter inadequacy, ultimately. Our utter insufficiency, our utter inability, our utter incompleteness apart from Christ and His grace. In case in point, just every funeral you go to, every every casket that you see, every, just death. Death is, is the megaphone of God to say, you can't, as much science and technology and medicine and, and discipline and, and getting in shape and having the right psyche and pumping yourself up and, and all these principles and wisdom, as much as you can actualize that during your lifetime, death is God's megaphone, just the chaos of life. Death is the epitome of chaos. And the effects of sin. And that is God's megaphone to say, you can't ultimately overcome the chaos. It's funny, during these times, you hear statements like this, we have to take this virus seriously. It's not going away automatically. And there's such a parallel there. I wish we would listen to our own thoughts of the pandemic. This unseen, at least with the naked eye, unseen little bug causing global havoc and even distancing people and relationships. It, it's a beautiful, poignant metaphor for sin. And if only we would pay attention to what Christ has to say about the chaos in this life and where it all ends. All, you know, Jesus saving, that, that's 
that's the most beautiful moment. But what it leads to then is that these people come back to the boat. Jesus and Peter come back to the boat. And those in the boat worshipped him. It was church. It was church of boat. Truly, you are the Son of God. They're worshiping Jesus for who he truly is. As the one who's able to, who was hovering before creation. And even now he's come back to begin to restore creation and the chaos of our lives to bring calm to it. Truly, you are the Son of God. And so finally, just how we can be like Peter, worship. Worship Jesus Christ as the Son of God. For friends who are still investigating Jesus Christ, I want to liken you listening to the gospel to uh, an earth grazer. Just this past week, apparently there was another earth grazer that's a meteor that enters the earth's uh, stratosphere, atmosphere, for just a limited time. So it's just grazing the earth. And this is a snapshot of whatever micro or telescopes and whatnot, instruments recording the path of this earth grazer. And, and, and the gospel in Christ is kind of like that. He, he came and grazed this earth. He came to earth. But the time to acknowledge him and to look to him to be the one that is hovering over the chaos of this life and my own sin, it's limited. And so please, worship Christ today. Great place to start is to pray, Lord, save me.